0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Luke 24 will be our passage of study today. Luke chapter 24, where we get started. Dealing with verses 44 through 49. And I think some of the confusion, the results, when we try to blend this with the Great Commission. The Great Commission is in Matthew chapter 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Um, it's a great message. There's an impact on that message we don't want to lose sight of. We want to understand our obligation to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. We want to understand how to fulfill that in, uh, in all of its uh, implications but then we come to luke 24 and maybe the biggest problem is is we try to inject that thinking into this passage and we try to inject the great commission and the disciple maker imperative into this passage this passage does not tell us to make disciples this passage does not tell us to do anything of the sort and I think uh, when we take a closer look at it, we'll have a better understanding why repentance for forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, all right? And why, if we try to merge, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved with repent, uh, we end up causing more trouble than, um, than it's worth. <laughs> all right, so uh, perhaps we'll uh, have a better picture on that. When we finish our message today, before we get started, let's ask the Father to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your Word. We do ask for your hand a blessing upon our study. As uh, Father, we turn to the Scriptures as we study to show ourselves approved. Father, we're asking for the faithfulness of your Holy Spirit to open the minds of our understanding. Father, you opened the minds of your disciples. We ask that you would do so for us here today. Uh, open our minds, Father, that we might have a wider appreciation for everything that your Son accomplished. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. The mountaintop setting, which was the setting for the Great Commission. I'm sorry? Oh, wow. That's bizarre. Thank you. Okay, that's good to know. Resize. Thank you. The mountaintop setting had a follow-up event in Jerusalem. The mountaintop setting was in Matthew 28. The mountaintop setting in Galilee, where the Great Commission was delivered. All right, the disciples, they went, they worshiped, they wavered. They received the imperative, the disciple-maker imperative. And so that setting now has a follow-up event in Jerusalem. To me, the geography is is critical on this to recognize that uh, where they are in Luke 24, uh, they are in Jerusalem. And there is nothing from verse 43 to the transition into verse 44 where all it says is now. He said to them, the uh, expression now gives us a time gap, tells us that there's a break of time and there is a later event But it tells us nothing about the geography, tells us nothing about the setting, the placement of this event. And as 44 through 49 comes to a close, or even within this, he says, you are to stay in the city. Stay in the city. If uh, you tell your dog stay, uh, he's going to stay right where he is. You know, you're not going to tell him to stay somewhere else, you know, go somewhere else and stay there. You say, stay. And he says, you are to stay in the city. And he leads them out as far as Bethany. Now, why would he lead them out after he told them to stay? Okay. Well, the recognition is, is that Jerusalem and the surrounding environs, including the Mount of Olives, even as far as Bethany, were still considered within the precinct. They were still considered within the boundaries of Jerusalem so that if you were there, if pilgrims were there, for example, for uh uh, passover or pentecost we got pentecost approaching here that you could depart out as far as the mount of olives as far as bethany in these places and not violate the restrictions not violate the sabbath day journey not violate uh you're, you're not leaving jerusalem by going out there and so you can be a pilgrim here in jerusalem and go out as far as that so he led them out as far as bethany lifted up his hands and blessed them Uh, We're not going to get into the ascension today. I'm just showing you that this is where they are. This is the setting. They're in Jerusalem when he delivers this message, what I call the great cognition. I've given it that title so that we separate it from the great commission, right? The great commission is make disciples, the disciple maker imperative. And I'm not going to single-handedly overthrow 2,000 years of church history whereby it's been called the Great Commission, all right? I don't like the title, but I'm not going to change it. (laughs) I'm not going to single-handedly throw out the title Great Commission, even though the word great's not in there, the term commission's not in there. There's missionary organizations that are called Great Commission Ministries and all the rest. And if you're talking to believers outside of this church and you mention the Great Commission, they know what you're talking about. They're talking about Matthew 28, all right? So there it is. I can relax about the title, Great Commission. Um, even though the word commission's not in the chapter, and neither is the word great, but I'm okay with that. Picking up on a faulty title, let me give you my own faulty title. How about the great cognition? Okay? Meaning that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Cognizance, cognition, the recognition that you don't always understand what you know. Okay? You may know things and not fully understand everything about what you know. And this is what he's doing. He's opening their minds so that they can understand the scriptures in verse 45. So if we differentiate this way, I think we do ourselves some huge favors. It was a different setting, a different time, a different place, and a different message. In the great cognition event, he was not commanding them to make disciples. He was not commanding them to make disciples. There's something else that's being spoken of here. There's something else that's being prophesied here. And um, we need to recognize that. So uh, what does he do? First of all, I rewrote most of these points. So this will be different than the point A you've written down before. <coughs> we gave it to you last week. um with slightly different language. Jesus provided a summary review. I think that's a better way of thinking of that. Jesus provided a summary review of his entire ministry. As we read it in verse 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So point A, Jesus provided a summary review of his entire ministry and placed each message in its specific Old Testament testament prophetic context i added the word prophetic in there you didn't have that word last week provided a summary review of his entire ministry and placed each message in its specific old testament prophetic context he takes them through systematically now the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms that's a wonderful verse Luke twenty-four forty-four is a beautiful verse in showing us canonicity, in showing us what in his day the believers viewed their canon of scripture. The fact that God had moved the holy men of old, right, carried them along, and had revealed scripture, the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's the same threefold division we have even to this day, the Jewish people have in their Tanakh, the Torah, the Neviim, the uh, Kithuvim. The same threefold division that's listed here. Now, I, how do you review everything that Jesus taught in three and a half years? Because okay? that would include the early baptism ministry, uh, that would include the repent and be baptized imperatives that they were involved with in those early days, that would include the Sermon on the Mount, whereby the uh, kingdom was announced and the, the uh, conditions of the kingdom were declared, kingdom law was provided as the intensification of Mosaic law with an added middle attitude component. Uh, I would include the Kingdom of Heaven parables. It would include the uh, All of it Discourse, the Upper Room Discourse, everything. That's a lot of teaching in three and a half years. And how long does it take to review that? I, I suspect that this event required several teaching sessions over several days to accomplish. I suspect that as he delivered this message that he took a number of days, three days, four days, five days, however many days, He had 40 altogether in his resurrection ministry. And we don't know precisely within those 40 days when the um, Great Commission was delivered in in Galilee, when they returned back to Jerusalem, uh, how many days prior to the ascension. We know the ascension was 10 days prior to Pentecost, so we have a 40-day window to work with. Pentecost coming on May 24th, uh, the ascension being May 14th. So when did they start meeting? Did they start meeting on May 4th? Did they have 10 days to to work through this? And then 10 days after he departs, we don't know. But the point is is that he is reviewing his teaching. These are my words. And he takes them systematically through. Now notice, which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now there was a similar expression in Matthew 28 But they weren't words, they were commands. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's different than what we have here. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Okay, So I view this as being a summary review of his entire ministry. Placing each in its Old Testament, notice though, prophetic context must be fulfilled must be fulfilled and the hermeneutical key that he gives them the hermeneutical key that we use today is the issue of fulfillment and i'll show that to you here in one of the subpoints all right so this event likely required several teaching sessions over several days to accomplish point b he opened their minds that's the same point I gave you before. I didn't expand on that or tweak that at all. The verb is dia We looked at the eight New Testament uses of dia to open, to explain. And this is what's happening here. He's giving them a more complete explanation, a, a more complete distinction between fulfilled and unfulfilled, a more di- a complete distinction, a systematic theology that they're going to need moving forward into the church age. If you think about it, it was, um, he likely, once he knew that he was a rejected Messiah, once he started to prepare them for the cross, you know, the the Matthew 16 episode, uh, the the, the teaching about the upcoming crucifixion and the death, once he passed that point in ministry, how much teaching did he really give them of second advent and kingdom glory and conquering and all the rest of that? I don't, don't think he gave them much at all. Uh, what we see in the, in, in the Gospels is he, he does give them parables, but he starts talking about the kingdom in parable form. He starts teaching about the, t- about the kingdom in mystery form. He then starts to prepare them for, he starts teaching when he does give prophecies of the kingdom, he's giving prophecies of judgment. The, the tribulation that's coming, the Gentiles surrounding Jerusalem, the temple being destroyed. He starts giving them messages that are very similar to Joel and, and um, uh, the Old Testament prophets about the destruction of Jerusalem. All right. And now that he's resurrected, now he's, really his emphasis was getting him ready for the cross. <laughs> That's what he was doing, getting him ready for the cross. Well, now he's getting them ready for the church age. And to do that, he has to rightly divide the word of truth between fulfilled and unfulfilled got to have their minds open to scripture and that's what he's doing here now under this here's some new subpoints for you understanding the scriptures must be comprehensive sub point one understanding the scriptures must be comprehensive he took them through systematically the law moses the prophets and the Psalms. It has to be systematic. For you and I, of course, it's the whole counsel of God's Word. Acts 17, 11, it's noble-minded to search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Systematically search the Scriptures. Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, we don't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of the Word of God, or the whole purpose of the Word of God. If you're going to be noble-minded and search the Scriptures, you've got to search on a whole council basis, all of it, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Understand the totality of the Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, the entirety of the Word of God on a dispensational basis, rightly dividing the Word of truth, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, okay? Rightly dividing the Word of truth. So understanding the Scriptures must be comprehensive. Secondly, understanding the Scriptures must rightly divide. Point two, this is sub-point two. These were sub-points I didn't have on the screen last week. Like I say, I went back through here and tweaked a little bit just based on all the the confused faces I was seeing (laughs) trying to teach this. He opened their minds to understand the Scripture. Understanding the Scriptures must be comprehensive. Understanding the scriptures must rightly divide. Second 2 Timothy 2.15 We present ourselves before him. We are diligent to present ourselves before him. Workmen needing not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Cutting straight the word of truth. Rightly dividing. <laughs> the straight cut. Okay, I'll never forget. My mother gave me great il- illustrations for this when we were children, her method for keeping us from fighting. Of course, if you've got an only child, you don't have to do it. But if you have multiple children, then they're going to fight over the cake or the cookie or whatever. And so to solve the fight, one child would cut the cake and then the other child picked which piece they wanted. And so, man, if you, you then the one had, that had to do the cutting made darn sure down to the micromillimeter that they were slicing that thing as precisely equal as they possibly could. Because they knew if they sliced it with one too big, then the other kid was going to pick the big one, and you were, gonna, you were shorting yourself is what you were doing. So we learned how to slice on a precision basis. And uh, pretty impressive, actually. But no, that's, and that's going to stick in my mind always as the imagery for rightly dividing the word of truth. We want to slice it precisely where God slices it. We want to know law versus grace, church versus Israel. We want to know first advent versus second advent. We want to know fulfilled versus unfulfilled. That's huge. Fulfilled versus unfulfilled. Understanding the scriptures must rightly divide. This is point two. Particularly on a fulfilled versus unfulfilled basis. The best hermeneutical tool you'll ever come across is the fulfilled versus unfulfilled distinctions all right the reason why is because it keeps us from becoming replacement uh theology people it keeps us from being uh post-millennial, all right everybody gets all millennial because they just they see all the unfulfilled prophecies and just say oh well god changed his mind and that's going to happen all right no god doesn't change his mind god said it was going to happen it's going to happen john 10 35 the scriptures cannot be broken if God said it, it's going to happen. If God said it and it hadn't happened yet, well, it's going to. It is still future, and I still classify it as unfulfilled. Okay? And so this is how we differentiate many of our first advent, second advent passages. Humble, riding on a colt, fulfilled, first advent. Okay? Um Landing on the Mount of Olives and smashing his enemies and bringing in everlasting righteousness. They hadn't done that yet. Unfulfilled. Okay? Still future. So, fulfilled versus unfulfilled. And it's the pattern that Jesus himself used. When Jesus himself taught Bible class in Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21, look how he teaches this Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, so this wasn't the only time he ever taught this way, this was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written. And he's, he's actually reading from what we know today, we call today Isaiah chapter 61. They didn't have the chapterification back then, but we understand it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops. He stops in an extremely awkward spot. And he closed the book, gave back gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. I can imagine. He stopped in an awkward spot. Why did he stop there? What's he going to say now that he's sitting down? He's standing up in the recitation. He's sitting down now for the teaching, for the explanation, the, the exposition of the, of the passage. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that's all we have recorded by Luke. We know his message had to have been longer than that because all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? But he gave them a comprehensive message, an exposition of Isaiah 61, verse 1 and one-third of verse 2. And he, ex- he gave an exposition of it and he used a fulfilled versus unfulfilled distinction. His hermeneutic was fulfilled versus unfulfilled. Flip back to Isaiah 61. Let's take a look at it. Isaiah 61. I love doing this because it's easy to do and it's uh, plain and simple. Somebody just saved yesterday can see this with their own eyes and uh, work their way through it. Isaiah 61. Verse 1 will be familiar and the first third of verse 2 will be familiar because we just read them in Luke. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Okay? To bring good news to the afflicted. Start to pay attention to these purpose clauses. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And that's where Jesus stopped and rolled up the scroll. Why did he stop there? why could he not read the very next phrase why could he not finish verse two why could he not read the verses after verse two because he's rightly dividing on a fulfilled versus unfulfilled basis and these things here are not fulfilled in first advent the day of vengeance of our god he can't read that line if he's going to rightly divide the word of truth on a fulfilled versus unfulfilled basis because the day of vengeance is second advent the day of vengeance is unfulfilled it's still future to comfort all who mourn comfort isn't coming yet for israel comfort will come to grant those who mourn in zion giving them a garland instead of ashes all right comforting all who mourn and granting those who mourn what are they mourning about what are they mourning about you can answer it now or you can wait till we finish this class and then you're going to learn the better answer are they mourning about the destruction of Jerusalem? Are they mourning about the Gentile dominion? Are they mourning about all the hardships they're going through? I'll leave it unanswered till we get to the end of the class. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's all 2nd Advent. That's all coming up. That is unfulfilled. For you and I today, in 2014 A.D., that's still unfulfilled. That's still future for Israel. Israel has a future. Now this is why the fulfilled versus unfulfilled basis, when we go back to Luke 24, 47, or Luke 24, 45, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures that they must be fulfilled Replacement theology ignores all that. says, well, they're not fulfilled. He changed his mind. Well, they're not fulfilled. Israel blew it. Well, they're not fulfilled. They, they rejected it, so he's replaced Israel with us. Or they're not fulfilled literally because they were never meant to be fulfilled literally. They, they were always intended to be fulfilled mystically or spiritually or allegorically. right? And, and so they, they, just, they just bastardized the language to, to lay claim to all of it on a spiritual, allegorical basis. No. The scripture cannot be broken. And the very same passages like Isaiah 61 that go through, take you both through first and second advent in the same context. First advent literal, second advent literal. It's the only fair way to be to the text. The only way to search the scriptures and see if these things are so. So, Understanding the Scriptures must be comprehensive and understanding the Scriptures must rightly divide, particularly on a fulfilled, unfulfilled basis. Point C, Jesus concluded this event with a death and resurrection message. Jesus concluded this event with a death and resurrection message. A week ago when I gave you the point, I had the word gospel in there, and I took it out because I'm going to try to avoid the confusion. The death and resurrection of Jesus is good news, all right? It is very much good news, but we need to recognize that there's good news and there's good news. There's good news in a lot of different applications whereby I can trust in Christ and receive eternal life. We're thinking about the good news whereby I believe in Jesus and I get saved. And so I'm trying this morning to strip away that handicap. Let's talk about different kinds of good news. Good news that Israel might receive when it comes to Israel expecting their kingdom. All right, And there's definitely good news that Israel might receive to enter into their kingdom. And the basis for that good news is the same as the basis for my good news for getting saved. It's that Christ died from, for our sins and rose from the dead. So it's the same good news reality, the same good news appreciation, but the context is different. Whether it's an unbeliever who's trusting in Christ to receive eternal life, or whether it's a Jewish person who is understanding the finished work of Christ in recognition of the coming kingdom, entering into their millennial glory. That's what we want to understand. And we did a good job with it. I think we did a great job with this in the communion uh, teaching. Because he said this is my blood of the new covenant. Okay? And we recognized that there was something more, that the, the, the blood of Christ was doing more than simply saving unbelievers. That the blood of Christ clearly was for the redemption of humanity. Yes, I'm not denying that, but more than that. In addition to that, the the ratifying of the new covenant with Israel, with uh, the, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That covenant was ratified by the blood of Christ. So two separate activities that were accomplished by the blood of Christ on the cross, and, and more. The blood of Christ also cleansed the heavenly temple. There was a lot that the blood of Christ was achieving on that day. I'm trying to open our minds to understand the scriptures more than just simply... The good news that unbelievers can trust in Christ and receive eternal life. All right? There is good news. The good news that he died and rose again. The good news in anticipation of this coming kingdom, whereby a repentance message has to start getting preached to Jews and Gentiles alike. And we're going to see that's the scope of Luke 24. So, Jesus concluded his event, this event, With a death and resurrection message. Now, clearly, his gospel content was quite simple and quite similar to 1 Corinthians 15. His gospel content was quite simple and similar to 1 Corinthians 15. He died according to the scriptures, he rose again according to the scriptures. The scriptures must be fulfilled. And so as Jesus says here, thus it is written, the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. <clears throat> you realize for Israel anticipating their kingdom, anticipating their long coming Messiah, they want Messiah to abide forever. They want a Messiah to conquer those Gentiles. They want Messiah to set up the, the, the oaks of of glory we were just reading about right and it really bugged them that Jesus was talking about dying and they're saying well wait a minute how, how, does, how do you say you're going to die the Messiah is going to live forever they were really hung up about this so the fact that he died and the fact that he rose again is good news for those Messiah anticipators that are waiting for the arrival of this kingdom it is good news all right. So his gospel content was quite simple and quite similar to 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4, stated here in Luke 24, 46. It is good news. It's good news content. Secondly, the passion and resurrection of the Christ gives a new significance to the proclamation of Repentance. And here's where we've got to slow down and understand what we're looking at. The passion and resurrection. The verb is pasco, to suffer. And resurrection, Anastasia, Anastasia, okay? The passion and resurrection of the Christ gives a new significance to the proclamation of repentance. A brand new significance to that. Yes, the death and resurrection of Christ is the basis for our gospel preaching too in the church age. I get that, but that's not what this passage is teaching. That's not where this passage is going. Pretend you don't know any of that. <laughs> okay? Pretend you're not a church age saint. You're an Old Testament believer, you're an Old Testament Jewish believer. You've been waiting 2,000 years for the Messiah. You've been waiting for the kingdom. All right. In fact, this is when you look at Acts chapter 1, the parallel text to Luke 24, we learn that this is what's on their mind. (coughs) Acts 1 is the parallel to Luke 24. Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Same author, same recipient. Theophilus is receiving both books. And in Acts 1, he says, you know, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So the Gospel of Luke is his first book to Theophilus. It was designed to present the whole ministry of Jesus Christ to the day of His ascension. The book of Acts now is part two. The book of Acts is what happens in the the days and years after that. The ministry of the apostles after with Christ seated in glory. But this first chapter kind of gives a little bit of an overlap in in these early verses. He kind of picks up the story where he left off the story in chapter 24. And so really Acts 1 is parallel to Luke 24. And so it says, uh, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering. Remember, it's all about the testimony of the suffering and his resurrection. After his suffering, by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Notice. Speaking to of the things concerning the kingdom of God. That's huge. Right? Because the church age is the kingdom of God in mystery, with you know the the King in heaven, waiting for the King to come to earth. It's Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. All right, now gathering them together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Verse four is a is a restatement of of our great cognition event. Verse four is a restatement of Luke twenty four verses forty four through forty eight. It's a summation of the entire Great Cognition episode. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. The Holy Spirit's on the way. The Holy Spirit will come on the day of Pentecost. Which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And they had ten days to wait from ascension to Pentecost, from May 14th and May 24th of 33 A.D. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? To me, that's key. (coughs) To me, that helps us to understand the dynamic at work in Luke 24 when he's telling them that uh, it is written that the Christ must suffer, that the Christ must rise again, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed. It's not about a church-age gospel. It's about the entrance into the kingdom. Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, the expectation of witness responsibilities. Notice, and this is why it just breaks my heart, People see the word witness, and they immediately think Great Commission, because they've got bad doctrine on the Great Commission. The Great Commission never says witness. Does it? No. Great Commission never once says witness. And and Luke twenty four never once says make disciples. Okay. Great Commission is make disciples. This this passage emphasizes the witness in anticipation of the coming kingdom. All right. You'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even in the remotest parts of the earth. Luke 24, beginning from Jerusalem. Beginning from Jerusalem. Now, admittedly, the Great Commission does say, make disciples of all nations. But it doesn't say witnesses, and it doesn't say beginning in Jerusalem, and it doesn't say from uh, Jerusalem to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. It is a bad approach that's conflating Matthew 28 and Luke 24. Keep the great commission as one message, and keep the great cognition as a different message, and you do yourself a huge favor. Again, point two, the passion and resurrection of Christ gives a new significance to the proclamation of repentance. The proclamation of repentance, by the way, which is not new. The proclamation of repentance that goes back to the role of John the Baptist. Subpoint A, John the Baptist proclaimed repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist proclaimed repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 3, verse 2 and verse 7. not john the evangelist it's john the baptizer it's the forerunner it's the herald this is not a gospel message this is not a gospel message there's no good news other than the kingdom of heaven is at hand and rally it's bad news the kingdom of heaven is at hand and you're not ready for it the kingdom of heaven is at hand and you need to repent right here right now join me there in matthew chapter 3 And see, when Christians today in the church try to adapt this in their evangelizing, it's horrible because they're putting a human effort on how to get saved. They're saying, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. The gospel for the church, the gospel for salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. This repent message, by the way, is not preached to unbelievers. It's preached to believers. Luke chapter 3. I'm sorry, Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the baptizer came, preaching, proclaiming, heralding. Keep that in mind. That's what uh, repentance has to be preached. In the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent. Explanation for... This reason the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This ministry is one that prepares for the coming kingdom. It's preparing for the coming kingdom and it's the role of the herald to do that. Now John himself and goes to describe his ministry and um, Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and the district around the Jordan being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. That's not a church age gospel activity. All right? If you're out there shouting to unbelievers to repent and bringing them down to town lake or somewhere and making them confess all their sins when you dunk them under, Okay? I've baptized uh, a few of you in this room. Did I make you confess your sins before I dunked you under? Announced, blabbed to the whole world what kind of a rotten person you used to be as an unbeliever? Okay. No. I don't want to know anyway. Neither do they. It's none of our business. Because that's not what's happening here. Look what happens when some unbelievers do show up. When many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came for baptism. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of the God? This repentance message was a warning, and it was a warning to believers. It is not a message to unbelievers. In Luke 24, when he says repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be preached, it's not going to be preached to unbelievers. It's going to be preached to believers. It is a warning of Second Advent judgment. This repentance message is not for unbelievers. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you claim it, then uh, the fruit will, will tell it. <coughs> Verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. That's how close you are to this judgment falling. The axe is there. It's already laid to the root. It's already made its notch. The target has been selected. The very next event is a swing into that blade. All right. John the Baptist proclaimed repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 2, verse 7. It's to believers, not to unbelievers. This national repentance is necessary for Israel's entrance into the kingdom. This national repentance. Not an individual person getting saved and receiving eternal life. It is a national repentance. The Jewish people Those that rejected him in his first advent have to accept him. This national repentance is necessary for Israel's entrance into the kingdom. John the Baptist's father actually prophesied of this at his birth. Luke chapter 1 67 through 80. Luke chapter 1 (coughs) 67 through 80. This national repentance is necessary for Israel's entrance into the kingdom. His father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, here's the first words he's spoken since his mouth was shut. (coughs) Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. His tongue is loosed and he blesses God the Father. to grant that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear. Notice now, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. They must be suited for that service. In holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. So what's your role in all of this? Of course, he's preaching to a newborn baby. The kid doesn't know what he's talking about. All right, But the message, we want to learn from it. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, notice, to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. It is far more than just a political deliverance, far more than just an earthly uh, empire. It is a political kingdom on this earth, but it is a kingdom of those who are redeemed. Only believers will enter into Israel into the millennial Israel. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which scripture, the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the role of John the Baptist. And because the Christ is rejected at first Advent, this will be the role of Elijah in second Advent. Elijah is coming. Elijah is coming in the great tribulation. It will be his role as well to turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers again. All right, so the national repentance is necessary for Israel's entrance into the kingdom. John the Baptist preached this, and guess what? Early in his ministry, Jesus also preached this. Jesus and his disciples likewise preached this early message of the kingdom. In Matthew 4 we see it, and in John 4 we see it. So back to Matthew chapter 3 we saw John the Baptist saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew (coughs) 4 verse 17 from that time Jesus began to preach and said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message. It's the same message John the baptizer had. This is the uh, Galilean ministry, and uh, fulfillment of uh, more Isaiah there, Isaiah 9, Galilee of the Gentiles. Looking forward to our upcoming Isaiah study. John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So he had this baptizing ministry in Judea, and then he carried it forth into Galilee. Now when did that change? When did he stop preaching repent? When did he stop preaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand? When did he start saying he started preparing his disciples for the cross is where he did It was that national rejection, okay, and uh we saw that hinge event there when we uh, were working our way through it. Let's look at Peter's early sermons now, point c Peter's first sermon on Pentecost was repentance for the forgiveness of sin's message. Try to use that in your gospel preaching today and break my heart. Why don't you? okay Do not use Acts chapter two in your gospel message today. Just as you don't use John the Baptizer's message. If you're telling unbelievers about their sins or you're telling unbelievers about eternal life, it's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Don't use John the Baptist's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and don't use Peter's message on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 or Peter's second sermon or Peter's defense before the Sanhedrin. The context for every one of those early sermons in Acts is to the Jewish people who had just crucified their king. The Jewish people who had just caused the uh, necessity for the second advent. They could have had their kingdom right then and there. So Peter's uh, point C, Peter's first sermon on Pentecost was a repentance for the forgiveness of sins message. The first such message with a passion and resurrection significance. Now here's the key. John the baptizer said, pre- uh, said, repent. Jesus said, repent. Peter now is able to add the passion and resurrection blessings. He's able to add the passion and resurrection good news to the repent message. For the first time ever now, the repent message can be, can be delivered and it can be delivered with the reality of the passion and resurrection of the Christ. And that is something special. In a lot of ways, it's uh, foreshadowing the uh, Jewish evangelist in the tribulation. It's foreshadowing the role of the witnesses in Revelation 11. It's foreshadowing the role of John the Baptist or of Elijah in the tribulation. All of those witnesses are going to be able to testify to the passion and resurrection of the Messiah. I mean, it's one thing to be waiting for a Messiah to come, but when you're waiting for the Messiah who came and died and rose again, and that's the Messiah you're waiting for to come, that that has an impact. That has a whole new significance. That means when he comes a second time, he can come without reference to sin. He can come a second time when he again brings the firstborn into the world. He can come now a second time for righteousness and planting the tree firmly, you know, the oak tree firmly planted. All right. So Peter's first sermon on Pentecost was a repentance for the forgiveness of sins message. Acts 238. Acts 2.38. This whole brethren, what shall we do? This is not the Philippian jailer. And Peter's response is not Paul's response. These folks are not unbelievers that need eternal life. They are Old Testament believers that crucified their Christ. Now in the context for this when they said to him when they heard this they were pierced to their heart they actually have a spiritual capacity to digest spiritual truth they have living human spirits and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles brethren what shall we do? Uh, Backing up you notice this is on Pentecost and who are these people? They are devout men. Verse 5, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Devout. If they were unregenerate Jews, they wouldn't even be in Jerusalem. They were devout. They were observant. That, that devout adjective is never used of unbelievers. Okay. They made the pilgrimage. They made the trip all the way from Parthia and Media and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Rome. They came from all over the place because they're saved they, they're worshiping yahweh they're elohim and so this is not a gospel uh, billy graham evangelism to unbelievers message this is a john the baptist repent message to old testament believers just like john the baptist in matthew 3 he told the brood of vipers i'm not preaching to you you're not saved He's preaching to the saved. And so here's Peter now. What shall we do? What shall we do? They were pierced to the heart. Pierced to the heart. They're spiritually alive. They are believers. <clears throat> and Peter doesn't say to them, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He says, repent. Change your thinking. You had the view that Jesus was a heretic and you crucified him change your thinking because he is now seated at the right hand that's the whole sermon before that okay the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand so therefore let all the house of israel know for certain that god has made him both lord and christ this jesus whom you crucified There's a whole new reality now to the repent imperative knowing that he has suffered and risen again, that he's seated at the Father's right hand. So they were pierced to the heart. What shall we do? Peter said, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're Old Testament believers. They need to be brought into the body of Christ. They need to become church age believers. They need to become New Testament believers. See, you and I get the Holy Spirit the day we're saved, the moment we're saved. But they were saved before the church age. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. He doesn't say, you will be saved. He says, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be added to the body of Christ. And that's why we have this idiom, they were added to their number day by day, (coughs) those who were being saved. All right. So Peter's first such message on his Pentecost sermon was a repentance for the forgiveness of sins message. The first such message with a passion and resurrection significance. So there is a passion and resurrection significance to a Jewish repentance message. Understand that? Can we we forget for the moment that there is a death and resurrection significance to our Evangelism, of course there is. But we're not talking about that today. If I'm giving the gospel to an unbeliever, yes, there's a death, there's a passion and resurrection significance to that. Sure, there is. Set that aside. Preaching repentance to Israel and to the Gentile nations in the tribulation, preaching repentance to believers in the tribulation, there's a significance with the death and resurrection of Christ. All right, his second sermon in Acts chapter 3. His second sermon. <clears throat> and he gives uh well there's a whole message there. I won't read from eleven following, but he says in verse seventeen, Now brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, for the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. You know what Acts 3.18 is? Acts 3.18 is the testimony that Peter was paying attention in Luke 24.46. Jesus taught them that all the things written in the prophets and and Moses and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And what's Peter doing here? Peter is now reteaching the Great Cognition Bible Conference. Peter is now saying the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all his prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. What Jesus preached in Luke 24, Peter is now preaching in Acts 3.18. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord repent what you did not do at first advent do now because jesus cannot come back second advent cannot take place the kingdom will not be established until the jewish nation repents whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which god spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time moses said see all of this you got to digest the old testament doctrine Now, on a fulfilled versus unfulfilled basis. All right. For you first, it is you, he says in verse 25, who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, uh, sending to Abraham. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. You first. First Advent, Jesus was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. First Advent, Jesus was repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Jewish people did not. They rejected their Christ. It's interesting. Um, The priests, officers of the temple, they start coming up. There's actually going to be a tremendous number of priests and Levites that actually start to acknowledge the reality of this message. Right here in consequence of this repentance message. Not telling unbelievers they need to get saved. Telling these carnal-minded Jewish believers, Old Testament, they need to adjust their thinking. Alright. Uh. Finally then, Acts chapter 5, when Peter's making a defense before the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter (coughs) 5. And this hit me like a two by four, what, three or four months ago, sometime back. I don't know that I'd ever studied this before until all of a sudden, boom, it jumped out of the page. Peter here saying we must obey God rather than men in Acts 5, 29, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand, notice, as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. If you're going to preach repentance to Israel, you need to be a witness That's what Luke 24 is all about. If you are going to fulfill the Great Commission, you need to be a disciple maker. And that's what Matthew 28 is all about. Divide these two messages and you do much better with it. All right. So Peter's first sermon was also similar. Israel will have a future national repentance as is necessary for the arrival of the kingdom and their entrance into it. We'll have to pick up here next week. Israel will have a future national repentance as is necessary for the arrival of the kingdom and their entrance into it. And their entrance into it. In fact, the wilderness judgment of Israel is where he brings them under the rod of the covenant. The rod of the covenant that was made possible because of his blood on the cross. Israel will have a future national repentance as is necessary for the arrival of the kingdom and their entrance into it. There is a nation in the, in the land today called Israel. It's not a Davidic throne theocracy. <laughs> All right, they've got a prime minister and a Knesset. And they are there in unbelief. They are there not accepting the Christ whom they crucified. But that day is coming. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. And then they will mourn. Then they will mourn. You think they have mourned prior to that? No. Not compared to that. Then they will mourn. And we'll teach that again next week. So We're just out of time. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your faithfulness. Continue to open our minds to understand the Scriptures. Identify for us, Father, what are the different um, good news applications. And uh, in particular... Work in us, Father, to rightly divide the word of truth so that we can give an appropriate gospel message for our stewardship and not confuse things uh, wrongly. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.